For March Madness, Sports Illustrated has a special show, Tourney Talk, hosted by Ted Keith and David Gardner. Each morning during the NCAA tournament, you'll find a recap of the previous day's highlights and a preview of what's to come. That's Tourney Talk with Ted Keith and David Gardner. Find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or si.com slash podcasts. The undergraduates at our university had never heard of any of these players or heard of these teams, so it was easy to manipulate the background story. So we told everybody that this was an underdog match, that one of the teams was a big underdog. They had played 15 times in the past, and every time one team had beat them. But all we did was manipulate. We said, you know, for half the people, the team in the yellow is the underdog. Half the people, we said, the team in the red is the underdog. Other than that, everyone's watching the exact same video. Sports fans and science aficionados, this is Sam Summers, and this is your Brain on Sports. It's our podcast in which a sports journalist, John Wertheim, the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, and a psychologist, that would be me, explore what the world of sports has to teach us about who we are, how we think, and the hidden forces that shape our behavior. This nexus of sports and social psychology and human nature is the focus of the book that John and I have written that came out just about a month ago now, at the beginning of February titled, Not Too Coincidentally, This Is Your Brain on Sports. You can now find it online and available at fine bookstores everywhere. In fact, the subtitle of the book includes the idea that the science of underdogs appears in the text. It does indeed. And I thought it is March Madness upon us. The start of the NCAA basketball tournaments are, are just around the corner. The brackets are out. People are filling them out. Uh, and I think this is a time of year, perhaps more so than any other, when we really showcase our love for the underdog. I mean, if there's one thing that, that March Madness means for many people, it's, again, filling out that, that bracket, that, that office pool or the family tournament pool, uh, and, and picking the winners for all of these games. But I think if there's a close second, it's, it's rooting for the underdog. There, are, there will be all these games, an embarrassment of riches for sports fans on Thursday and Friday of this week, over the weekend, into the weeks that come. But especially in those early rounds, I think we tune in to see a good game, to see things happen against you know teams that we don't necessarily know that well, but also to root for the underdog. And, and there's a long list of the famous underdogs in March Madness history, from, from Richmond to, more recently, the Florida Gulf Coast University, to the, the mid-majors or George Masons and teams that make runs in the tournament. Uh, and, and so we thought we'd talk about the science of underdogs. And so we have with us a, a man who is no underdog himself, but is an expert on the topic. That is uh, Professor Joe Vandalo, who is a professor at the uh, University of South Florida in their uh, psychology department. Joe, thank you so much for joining us here today. Good to be here, Sam. Thanks. And uh, so, Joe, you are, that's correct to say, right? You are a, a researcher who has studied the science of underdogs. Is that correct? That's correct. One of the few. One of the few. So in some respects, an underdog within the field in that sense. Well, why, yeah. why do you think that is? That surprised me. Why, why do you think so few people have studied this? That's a great question. When, I, when we started studying this, um, gosh, I guess it's been about eight years now, uh, I was talking to a graduate student about this question about, you know, why people root for underdogs. And we immediately went to the literature and said, well, what's the social psychology say about this? And we were struck by the fact that no one, had, no one had even touched this literature. There are a few people outside of psychology and marketing and so forth, but um, very little research within our field, which 
I mean, that's always perfect for a social psychologist. There's a, 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 a field to be explored at that point. Yeah. So, so we have this, 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 uh, this ubiquitous phenomenon of rooting for the underdog. I mean, you don't have to explain it to sports fans. We all know, mm-hmm. you, know you, you want, uh, you know, you want the underdog to win. I mean, it's just something that almost comes naturally to you. Unless you have a vested rooting interest in the outcome of that game, you know, you're an alum of one of the schools or in another sport, it's a division rival, so you really need the favorite to win to help your team. All, all things being equal, we're going to pull for the underdog. Um, do we have a sense from science? Can you give us a, if you would, can you describe for us what a study on the, the science of the sports fan and, and underdog preference might look like? Sure. Well, the, the early studies start out very simple. You just give people usually hypothetical matches because you want to kind of uh, erase all of the stuff that you just talked about. We don't want people to come in with kind of pre-existing biases about who they like, the home team, uh, the in-group, that kind of thing. So we usually create hypothetical matchups, oftentimes teams that don't exist or outside of sports uh, entities that don't really exist. And then we manipulate underdog status in a number of ways. It could be in sports. It could be likelihood of success. It could be resources, and I think that's there's an there's an important distinction to be made there. And then we just ask people, you know, who do you who do you support? Who do you like? Who do you who will you get behind? Who would you root for? All those questions, and um, we find over and over again across different domains. I know we're talking about sports, but also we find it in politics, in business, in uh, in interpersonal relationships, in international politics that people go for the little guy. However, we define that. Yeah, and so I think that's, and we're gonna, uh, if your patient's willing, uh, we're gonna you know, talk a little bit about politics and, and geo uh, international uh, relations. I think those implications are fascinating. Uh, I mean, in the, I think to me, in, in reading your work in the sports domain, one of the most interesting sets of studies are the ones where where you have people like literally watching. People are actually watching actual games, and and like you said, it's often what American sports fans watching European basketball, so they don't know anything about the teams. That's right. Um, so you know, watching the. David Blatt in the pre-NBA era coaching some European basketball teams that are against one another and just varying or manipulating who they think the underdog is, it changes who they root for. And that's interesting. But it actually changes like literally what they're seeing in front of them and how they're interpreting the action on the field of the court, right? Right. So we did one study where, as you said, we, uh, we had people watch short videos of an actual basketball match. This was a European championship match between an Israeli team and a Spanish team. And uh, I'm sorry, a Greek team. And presumably most of the undergraduates at our university had never heard of any of these players or heard of these teams. So it was easy to manipulate the background story. So we told everybody that this was an underdog match, that one of the teams was a big underdog. They had played 15 times in the past and every time one team had beat them. But all we did was manipulate. We said, you know, for half the people, the team in the yellow is the underdog. Half the people, we said the team in the red is the underdog. Other than that, everyone's watching the exact same video. And then in addition to asking the normal questions like, who do you root for? And we find, you know, people do root for the underdog. We said, tell us about the performance of the team you watched. And we asked them to, to identify or to, to rate the teams on a number of different qualities and traits. How much effort did the team put out? How much heart did the team have? Um, how much natural athletic ability? And so we were able to put all those things together into kind of two categories of responses. One is um, kind of the effort and the heart. And that's what, and regardless of who they thought, or who, depending on who they thought the underdog team was, that's the team that they thought had more effort and heart. 
and who, who the team that they thought was the the top dog, the team that was supposed to win, was seen as having less heart, less effort, but actually more athletic ability and kind of natural talent. So you, even and so, watching the same teams, people yeah. kind of see things very differently depending on what they what they think the background story is. I mean, so, and they're literally watching the exact same game, right? I mean, it's right. yellow versus blue or whatever. And if I think yellow is the underdog, yellow scrappy and hustles That's or whatever. Right. And if it's no, no, it's blue. Other people, oh yeah, blue scrappy and hustles and. And, and yellow just has natural talent or something like that. That's right, right. So it actually changes the, the your perception of the of the the teams you're watching. We find this in a lot of different contexts. Well, and so that I think leads to me. So one of the interesting things I find about being a social psychologist, much like yourself, is one of the one of the I think hooks for a lot of behavioral science research is let's take something that people expect uh, and sort of turn it on its head. Now here, here's what's interesting about the underdog scenario to me. I think most people would tell you, sure, we root for the underdogs. Underdogs are are, uh, are just inherently appealing. And what you have to almost do is the opposite and say, hey, but think about that rationally. That's sort of crazy. It's mm-hmm. sort of it, it's very counterintuitive at some level. And I know it, it's second nature to us as sports fans and as Americans, perhaps, that we root for the little guy. But think of all the mental gymnastics we put ourselves through to associate ourselves with with winning causes. Right to to buy brand names so we can bask in that reflected glory. To yeah, not only is it counterintuitive, it runs counter to a lot of social psychology, yeah, exactly. or at least seemingly counter to a lot of social exactly. psychology. All these things we do to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, and here we are hitching our stars to our wagon to the star that's by definition more likely to lose. That's right. So that in and of itself, and when you stop to think about it, though this seems very much like second nature, this is counterintuitive stuff, at least with regard, as you suggest, to a lot of the mental gymnastics we go through on a regular basis to make ourselves feel better. Um, right. Why, why is how is that? How is this so unbelievably appealing to us? Even though at the end of the day, what we're doing is casting our lot with the likely loser. That's a great question. I mean, that's I mean, that's really the crux of all this, right? Why? Why do so? Why do we do this? Why do we root for underdogs? And I don't think there's one. I don't think there's one answer to this. I think there's a, a number of different answers to this. Um, part of it, and I think this is particularly the case with sports, is that we, you know, it's about the thrill. We like the thrill of the unexpected, and there's a lot of research to suggest that. Uh, things that are unexpected carry more emotional weight, and that goes both ways. So things that are an unexpected win is is more exciting than an expected win, but an unexpected loss is kind of more devastating than an expected loss. So if you put those things together and kind of do the mental calculus, it makes sense that you would root for the underdog, right? Um, it's not going to feel so bad if the yeah. underdog loses. It's going to feel great if they win. Not a lot to lose. If you root for the top dog, it's going to feel okay if they win. It's going to feel terrible if they lose. Now, this, it makes sense if you're ignoring the fact that by rooting for the underdog, they're probably going to lose by definition. Right. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think that's I think that's an incomplete explanation. It's not that satisfying to me because I think there's, as you, any sports fan knows, we get really, really emotionally invested in sports. That goes beyond just, I think, the thrill uh, of the unexpected. And, and you know, take any team like I'm trying to think of one in the, in the current uh, brackets now that uh, – so like a Yale, a Yale, I think, is, is a 12 seed this year. No one's going to call them the underdog, right? So and that's and if you just go by their expected likelihood of winning their first match, they're going to lose. But but that's not why we that's not going to be enough for us to root for this team. So I think it goes beyond that. I think they're it's almost that, a moral. Because they're an Ivy League school, is that it? Because they're, they're an Ivy League school, because they, they don't fit the classic underdog story. So I think this kind of gets at kind of what is an underdog in the first place. And I think it's a little simplistic just to say the underdog is the, is the team who is unlikely to win. So if, if, a, if a major, there's a major conference has a team with a borderline record or a bubble team, they're a 10 seed, not going to do much for us. Uh, they may do something for us. So, so somebody like a, a Monmouth or a... 
a UNC Asheville. So the small, right, right. But like your, right. your, your Syracuse makes the tournament and they have a low seed. That's not compelling to us, but your, your Monmouth, for example, your Holy Cross sneaks into the field with a that's right. record. Somehow that's so to me that suggests it gets it more at the fact that these teams don't have the history, don't have the resources, don't have the kind of status that these other teams have, right? And I think that kind of gets at really what an underdog is about. It's really a moral question when it really gets down to it, right? Yeah. So like next next year, Super Bowl rolls around for whatever reason, injuries, who knows, whatever the the Patriots are in it, and they're like a two touchdown underdog. America's not going to unite necessarily around Bill Belichick and the Patriots or, That's or, right. or the Yankees as an underdog in a playoff. That's season. right. If the Yankees are in last place halfway through the season, I don't think any, I don't think they're going to see this groundswell of right. support of America's team. Right. Well, I mean, and, and you and you alluded to this, so I think we should talk about it. There's a bunch of, believe it or not, there's stuff happening in the world besides this basketball tournament, right? And there's elections <laughs> and things like that. And, and we have and, another big matchup happening this exactly, today, right. as a matter of fact. Yeah. Exactly. As we record this, getting ready for a big primary day. And so... Um, this manifests itself there, right? I mean, there's uh, this manifests itself in how we view nations and, and, and look at maps, right? I mean, there's some data out there on underdogs with regard to international relations, correct? Yeah, so we did a study a, a number of years ago uh, where we asked people to consider the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and we wanted to see if we could kind of shift people's opinions based on framing one side or the other as underdogs. And so we use this conflict because, again, this is a, we, we use undergraduate college students who aren't highly invested in this. And a lot of them, frankly, at that age, don't know a lot about the history of the conflict. So we give everybody a, a short history. We give them a, a one-page kind of summary of the history of the Israelis and Palestinians. And after reading this, we ask them, which, which side are you more supportive of? Which side do you think you would back in this conflict? And we tried to be as neutral as possible with the way we wrote it up. The only thing that we changed was we gave everybody a map to go along with the, the essay. And we said, this is, you can look at this to kind of see the area which, you're, which we're talking about. For half the people, we showed a map that was focused kind of tightly on Israel with the Palestinian territories um, as kind of the smaller area. So if you look at that map, Israel looks big. The Palestinian territories look small. Palestinian territories are the underdog. For half the people, though, we pulled the map back to show kind of the greater Middle East area. And at that point, Israel looks small, and they're surrounded by the rest of the Middle East, which looks large, the kind of the Arab territories. That made all the difference in the world. So when we asked people, who do you think the underdog is? Well, people who saw the map that where Israel was big said the Palestinians were the underdog. Uh, if people saw the, the map where the, of the greater Middle East, Israel was the underdog. And that followed from there uh, people's support. So people said they were more likely to support whichever side they thought was the underdog. Interesting. I mean, in there you would think, you know, less about hedging your bets and, and, and wagering and, and emotional payoff and perhaps more about equity concerns at some level that whoever... Exactly. Is. So to me, that's... Those studies, when you go beyond the, the world of sports, suggest that there's something more than just we like the thrill of the unexpected, right? It's, it has more to do with uh, people's aversion to inequality. Yeah. People wanted to kind of right the scales of karmic justice. Yeah. And well, and again, and you mentioned that today, today is, today's a big, yet I don't know how many Super Tuesdays you can have in, a, in, a, in an election, but we got another one today. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and this manifests itself in, in, in politics too, right? I mean, we've got... Politicians love calling themselves underdogs. Everyone's an underdog, right? Bernie's Everybody's ultimate, an underdog. Bernie Sanders is the ultimate underdog. He's this rumpled independent from... Okay, fine. He's raised millions of dollars, but he's an underdog. Hillary's the ultimate underdog. She'll be the right. first woman to ever get the major party nominated. You know, on the Republican side, you've got... I'm the son of a bartender. I'm the son of an immigrant minister. Donald Trump thinks he's an underdog. Donald Trump is an underdog, right? I mean, he yeah. gra granted he would have uh, festooned the log cabin in which he grew up with very gold lettering in his name. Right. But but every, he's an outsider, the ultimate outsider, the ultimate underdog. Does does that does that stuff work? I mean, everyone does it. That stuff works. 
that's it's a it's a it's a precarious uh, position to put yourself in. So everybody wants to do it. And we've done several studies where we show people, even in the world of politics, will, will be more likely to support an underdog. They like underdogs better. They find them more likable. Where it becomes difficult is if someone declares themselves an underdog. It's a safer bet if you can be declared the underdog by other parties, by the media and so forth. People love it when the media declares you an underdog. Uh, where, it can, where it can run into risk is when, when you declare yourself an underdog, when kind of objective reality suggests otherwise. Uh, because it comes across as disingenuous, it can come across as kind of pandering. I like so I think it. that's where it becomes tricky. It's sort of like it. it's sort of like a like a good nickname. Like you can't give yourself a good nickname, that's right, but if that's someone right. else comes up with it, it could be cool. So it's that fine right. line between how. You, so and, and voters are then if you really believe someone is the underdog, voters are then you know draw. I mean, at, the, at some of them we're electing these quote unquote leader of the free world, as we like to say here in America. Um, right. But there is yet something compelling about wanting to pick the rags to riches story, the Cinderella story, the underdog still, huh? Well, you know, we like an underdog, but we also like in politics, the, the, the trick for a candidate is to, to portray yourself as both an underdog and as the guy who's going to win the election, right? Yeah. So it's, it's an underdog who's going to succeed. So that's that's the tightrope you have to walk. You, you have to portray yourself as an underdog, but not as someone who's likely to lose. Well, that, I mean, it seems like there's parallels there. If I, when I turn on the uh, the one sixteen game, the two fifteen game on Thursday between those seeds, and it's a 30-point, I'm not going to watch, or it's a 30-point deficit, and root for that 16 seed to come back, I'm not going to do it. i gotta, I got to get the live cut-in that tells me, well, we're old. So back in the day, there was the live cut-in. Now they're all, they're all online and they're streaming. But I got, I got some, someone needs to tell me, someone needs to tweet to me or send me a Vine, Joe, that tells me, hey, you got to check this out. There's a, there's a 15 seed that's only down two points with eight minutes left. Turn it on, right? I mean, I do. I want an underdog, but not, not a hopeless one. I want one with a shot to win. Right. There's a point at which it becomes diminishing returns. No one's going to uh, root for the team that has no chance. No one's going to vote for the political candidate that has no chance to succeed. Right. Outside of the hardcore, the hardcore fans. Yeah. Yeah. Or the uh, what it's uh, it's Dumb and Dumber, the Jim Carrey line, right? Where the so you're telling me there's a chance. So as long as That's as true. long as there's a chance, but right, right. For most of us, what's compelling are, you know, yes, the the opportunity, like you said, you, you don't want to miss something exciting, and something exciting would be. Not so much the nine seed knocking off the eight seed, but something exciting would be seeing that that three seed pull off an upset, seeing that that elusive sixteen seed winning a game over the one seed. That would, not only would you want to potentially see it, but to be invested in it, the payoff just dramatically more than you know rooting for Kansas to knock off the sixteen seed. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so I guess what I thought I'd ask you about here as we wrap things up is this seems a very pervasive phenomenon, right? Talking to sports fans, you don't have to convince them underdogs are appealing. And apparently for voters and for, for those who follow or don't follow international relations as well, um, you know, there, there's a corporate component to this too, right? Every, every brand you mentioned marketing and, and I mean, every, every company, even the blue chip stocks sort of like to convey themselves as being the origin story of two guys in a garage creating, right. whether it's a fruit drink or an ice cream or a computer. Right, um, right. But at the end of the day, I mean, as pervasive as this is, as widespread as this is, is it really that strong an affinity, I guess, is my question. I mean, am I really, as you, as you mentioned, I, the, 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 the payoff is great if the underdog wins, but if the underdog loses, I probably sh- shrug it off pretty quickly. Um, at the end of the day, aren't most of us walking around with Patriots jackets or Yankees hats or Duke, North Carolina, Kansas, Michigan State paraphernalia? 
Yeah, that's right. So, and this goes, yeah, as you say, goes beyond sports, right? Everybody wants the independent coffee shop to succeed, yeah. and everyone's drinking the Starbucks, or right. every, you know, everybody, everybody wants the uh, the mom and pop uh, hardware store to, to survive. But you know, it's easier and cheaper maybe if I go to Home Depot. Right. So I think there's, I, I think it's, it's, you know, self interest gets in the way. Yeah. Uh, so we, we we certainly love our underdogs. Um, and my colleague Scott Allison says that underdog love is a is an inch deep and a mile wide. Nice, yeah. So uh, it's clearly there. We all we all have it at some level. It's uh, it's a fleeting love affair in many respects. It's a fleeting love affair and uh, other factors I think get in the way. Get in the way. Very good. Well, Joe Vandelo from uh, University of South Florida, you have given us a lot to think about. I'm sure the majority of, of Americans now, as they're out there consuming their beverages and their and their Buffalo wings, boneless and otherwise, will be thinking now of your research and as they tune to which channel will give them the, the greatest uh, emotional uh, kick for their, for their buck as they, as they watch this. I do think, again, I think it's worth stopping to think about this is second nature, again, to Americans. We didn't talk much about does this translate to other cultures and so forth. But, but for Americans, I think in particular, this is, this is second nature. But when you stop and think about it, gosh, it's, it's, it's sort of beautifully irrational. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that gets lost sometimes in the in the allure of the underdog. But but uh, Joe Vandalo again, a man who I will go on record now as stating is a, t- by far a top dog in the field, not no underdog <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, we appreciate you coming and spending some time with us uh, as the tournament gets ready to kick off, giving us a bit of a scientific perspective on how this whole underdog thing shakes out. Great to be here, Sam. Keep up the good work. Appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for, for, for tuning in and listening uh, to This Is Your Brain on Sports. John and I are going to continue doing these podcasts now that the book is out. Uh, again, we'd uh, suggest you take a look at the book. It's If you like what you heard on the podcast today, Joe's research, a lot of this uh, information about underdogs specifically uh, can be found in the book, but a lot of other really interesting topics related to basketball, sure, but football, hockey, soccer, baseball, uh, running mixed martial arts, you name it, uh, and, and a wide variety of different scientific perspectives. So definitely take a look for that. Uh, we are we can be reached at, uh, at John underscore Wertheim or at Sam Summers. Uh, tweet to us at those if you have questions or ideas uh, for the podcast or about the book. And again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll be with us next time. <laughs>